Welcome, everyone, to the In-House Roundhouse, where in-house lawyers, outside counsel, and industry experts gather around to discuss current issues and best practices. I'm your host, Mark Enriquez, a commercial litigator with Womble Bond Dickinson. This episode is part of a series we're bringing throughout the rest of 2021, focused on the current and future state of the economy. One area of the economy that is red hot is mergers and acquisitions, and I'm excited to have my friends and partners, Scott Anderson from the Charlotte office, Dean Rutley from our Northern Virginia office, to talk to us about what is happening now in the M&A field. Scott and Dean, so happy to have you guys join us today. Thanks so much, Mark. Happy to be here. No, appreciate it. And looking forward, and I know we're going to talk about how busy you've been, so it means even more that you're willing to take a little bit of time uh, and share what's been happening on the audience. I seem to be seeing articles about M&A, you know, all the time, how many deals are happening, how overworked the lawyers are, how you can't keep staff (laughs) on the deals. Um, And we put up a poll on LinkedIn asking what people think is fueling the trend. And I thought the the results were interesting, and and I'll share those now. Um, We had four categories, tax changes, increased economic activity, regulatory structure changes, and others. We did have almost 20% say other, and I'm not quite sure what those are. Maybe you can add some insight there. But the overwhelming favorite choice was increase in economic activity. And certainly we're seeing that as um, a couple months ago, I'd say moving out of the pandemic. Now with Delta variant, it's less clear we're moving out. But at least some of the economic activity seems to be revving up. GDP is moving up. Earnings are looking better at a lot of companies. But let me ask you guys, you guys are in the trenches every day doing these deals. I'll start with you, Dean. You've been doing this a long time. Do you have a sense of what's fueling it? And how does today's activity compare to what you've seen over the course of your career? Sure. Well, (laughs) over the course of my 35 years, I've never seen anything like this. And unlike 2008, 2009, when there was an economic, you know, the housing market bubble burst and and then 9-11 when that happened and there was a drop in deal activity uh, severely. So big hits like that. I personally thought that COVID uh, in March of 2020 was in April timeframe was going to end up being a huge dampener and it was temporarily, but no, I've never seen activity like this. I personally, and I'm sure Scott has too, I've had my largest years of M&A transactions in terms of deal volume and in terms of deal value in my entire 35 years. I mean, it's where it's not unusual for us to, on my team to have nine to uh, 12 deals going at once. So I think, you know, your your poll answer, the increase in activity is such a broad statement that can be broken down a little bit. I think it's a healthy stock market, the availability of cheap debt. uh, So there's a lot, interest rates are so extremely low that uh, buyers can borrow uh, for acquisition financing very cheaply. And an upbeat, upbeat sentiment in certain segments, such as technology, healthcare, and financial services. But one of the things that was really interesting is, you know, as the world locked down and masked up, M&A certainly endured. The first half of 2020 was a little bit of a ground down on M&A as management teams focused their attention on two priorities and just keep employees safe and, and businesses running. But then very quickly in the second half, things started jumping up. And I saw Bain Capital and others who quoted, you know, 30 to 60 percent increases gradually over uh, the third and fourth quarters. But one of the things I think that's also really interesting and happened was rapid digitalization. And, you know, that is that is underpinning the M&A recovery. 
and enabling the, the hot white hot market we're seeing right now. Corporate M&A and, and private equity teams and law firms, accounting firms have all found ourselves adapting to the world of virtual due diligence, deal closings and integration. So that's the kind of stuff. It, it, it was the pandemic that actually forced us to enforce bankers and private equity and everybody to adapt to this virtual world. And we found we could do deals actually more efficiently and faster, you know, working through digitization, uh, including closings and, and everything else being done. So, you know, so anyway, that's that's my quick. That's over- yeah, no, that's a fascinating insight about the need to do it in a digital way actually being an accelerant in terms of making it more efficient and using forcing everyone to use some of those digital tools you know that we had been using some but now everybody has to be in it i i hadn't thought about that but that's that's a significant insight um scott let me get your your input what what are you seeing and what do you think may be the cause of the activity you're seeing sure similar to dean um activity has been super heavy uh, probably more so than in any other point in my career as well. And I, like Dean, was expecting last spring there to be a more prolonged slowdown. I would characterize it more as a hiccup, really. Um, sort of April, May was a little bit slow. And then as soon as people realized, wow, you know, I can get this deal closed uh, without having to travel around, without having to go and meet the management team, once people got comfortable with virtual connection, then the volume, you know, picked right back up. And then, you know, we've seen probably, you know, a a larger increase in any other segment of sellers being from the sort of family office, family owned business, individual founders um, doing a lot of the selling, which I was thinking about this uh, over the weekend. I think it kind of goes back to if we're going to relate it to COVID, it's maybe that sort of you know, now is the right time. You never know what tomorrow brings. I've built my business. I've got it to a good point. Could I hold on to it for five years and sell it for 15% more? Maybe, but I can sell it right now because I don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. And I think because of the overgloss of human nature across all of this, you get a lot of people just ready to um, pull the plug or rip the Band-Aid off, you know, whatever um, metaphor you want to use that says now is the time to do it. So let's do it. And then the buyers are both strategic, uh, you know, operating companies that have, you know, having good years themselves. So they've got cash to deploy. As uh, Dean said, that the debt is cheap right now. We've seen a lot of what we call dividend recaps where, you know, people borrow money and then make dividends to their shareholders because the, the banks are willing to lend. And then, you know, I think there's this perceived pent up demand that, It may not even be real, but people think that there's a lot of money on the sidelines, and so there's this frothy competition, kind of what we call it in the market, um, which has just, you know, made it for, as you said, Mark, sort of a red-hot M&A market. Thanks, Scott. Dean? Hey, Mark, Mark, one other thing that just is hitting me I want to bring up, um, and that is in addition to my comment about uh, M&A digitization and the ability to do uh, due diligence and, and close deals with digital tools and virtually. One of the other things um, that often sometimes could have slowed down M&A activity would have been post-closing integration. 
uh, after the MA lawyers are done. And then the companies are left with these targets that they bought that they may have never even met with. So we did a deal early in COVID where it was a $40 million deal. And and I held my breath as, as the buyers did uh, to see you know how the integration was going to happen. And it actually happened quite well because of everybody working home. All their employees were virtual anyway, so there wasn't an integration problem. So one initial fear that could have slowed down, and I know some buyers were worried about that, all these deals we have, how are we going to integrate if we can't travel, if we can't meet with the people, if we can't have them in the offices, if we can't have the, the warm and fuzzy get-togethers and handing out new coffee mugs with the new company name on it, et cetera. And buyers found that they could integrate virtually and that they, the business would keep running and that they could fold in. And then they found they had the revenue without necessarily a lot of the expense of traveling and all those meals to celebrate, get together, and people just kept working. And so I think the digitization not only helped M&A lawyers and bankers and private equity and all get the deals uh, started and done, but the companies buying the targets found that they could integrate uh, because of digitization as well. Interesting. Interesting. But how are the lawyers going to be able to eat if they're not going to these big uh, celebratory dinners? I don't know. I think that's a that's a worry, right? <laughs> I, could, you know, I just stand to lose the 30 uh, COVID pounds. There you uh, go. Anytime. So if that starts melting away, that'll be great. <laughs> that's why. It actually meant mentioning the dinners. I think we've got a lot of listeners that are in-house counsel. And one thing I know they're seeing is some of the impact on the labor market, particularly the market for kind of associates, mid-level M&A folks that maybe they would be recruiting in-house to help them with transactional work or just, you know, they're in a bidding war. Can, can either of you share a little bit? I know at Womble, it's been a it's been a struggle trying to keep our talent and figure out how we're going to manage. You know, we get people recruited away. What? Let's start with you, Dean. What What are you seeing and how, help people understand what may be going on? Well, yeah, look, uh, there's there was a good article in the American Lawyer uh, from uh, quoting a bunch of some of the New York law firms that where one of them said, look, I, I can't even plan for the future. I'm just trying to hire to deal with what's on my plate right now. Um, we certainly, as an AMLAW 100 firm, are also feeling that. And yes, you know, some people are almost like in the NFL are paying ridiculous prices to and huge signing bonuses to take somebody. The problem is going to be what happens when when the economic M&A activity returns to just normal trading levels, we don't have to have a 2008, 2009 housing crisis type hit. We could just return to normal trading levels. And some of the associates who are taking a chance at grabbing the free agent money may find themselves on the short end of the stick when the music stops and, the, and everyone has to sit in a chair. There may not be enough chairs for everybody. Um, how are we responding to that? Um, I know Scott and I have had some conversations. We've been on some interviews. We have likewise then, you know, replaced some of the people, a few people we have lost. We haven't lost a lot, but we've lost some, uh, certainly some of our mid-levels. And that seems to be the most attractive uh, uh, target is second years to fifth years. But we've been very successful within uh, a few weeks. We actually replaced three with three, um, and we're looking to grow from there. So, you know, we're acting like a lot of firms are. We're trying to make sure we can continue to uh, service the clients we have and 
Scott and I both represent a number of private equity funds. Uh, we have portfolio companies for those private equity funds. Some of them are roll-ups. And, uh, you know, the selling point for us is that we are, you know, one portfolio company. We've done 43 deals in under three years. So, you know, they're, they're basically closing a deal a month. And so we can promise that we can offer that to some of the uh, people who are looking to join us. And we have a a kindler, gentler firm. I've been here 17 years after having been at a New York, uh, you know, top 10 law firm uh, before I would join Womble. And I can tell you, I enjoy the the balance that we have here. So I think we'll do, we'll be all right. It, it, it's been a crazy market. And this is not just the lawyers, by the way. I was just at a ACG, Association of Corporate Council, I mean, excuse me, Corporate Growth uh, Networking Event. Uh, one of the first live events that we had in the national capital region here. And we're hearing it from the commercial banking and from the accounting firms as well. They're all struggling to find talent to service this white hot market. But I think we'll all be okay. Scott? Yeah, no, I, I agree. Scott, I'm interested in your thoughts. I know we've had at least one associate leave and then come back when they realize what they're what they're in for at a different firm with a different <laughs> different expectations. So um, but and anything you want to add to what Dean's saying in terms of the war for talent and maybe where you see that going over the next over the next year? Sure. It, it's definitely there. And I think, you know, when people leave and come back, they see that the grass is not always greener on the other side of the hill. Um, I think it's, it's probably a perfect storm for talent at, at the professional level, uh, whether it's legal accounting or whatnot, because you've also got sort of the leading edge of the millennials as well, kind of getting into that mid-level career path. And so decisions are made differently in that generation as well. And I think there's going to be a bigger focus. You know, money is certainly important and out there, and you have to be able to pay the mortgage and the bills and whatnot. But I think as people look at and evaluate their own choices and look at recruiting and whatnot, it becomes more important to kind of listen to what people want with their career, what sort of niche practice they may want to grow, or what's important to them is working at home five days a week or three days a week or, you know, and kind of COVID has exposed the flexibility in the market, if you will, if we as employers and, and others, um, you know, are willing to provide that as well. I think that's really what this sort of next generation of up-and-coming leaders is is interested in. And so uh, while money is, is still certainly part of the package, culture, how it is, whether it's in the office or on the screen, you know, and the people that you're working with, and then um, being able to maximize sort of what's important to you and whether that's flex time or off hours or, you know, commuting once a month for a team meeting, um, I think, you know, in employers and successful employers will end up kind of embracing it and realize we're probably not in a one-size-fits-all kind of environment any longer for much of anything. Yeah, no, I totally agree with you. I think that's right, and I think we've got to adjust. It's going to be interesting to see what that future hybrid workplace really looks like at law firms like ours. Since I've got two of our leading M&A lawyers on the line, I wanted to tell our listeners a little bit about some other current M&A trends. Scott, I know you and I had a case that involved a dispute over representation and warranty insurance on an M&A deal. And it's my understanding that that kind of insurance coverage is becoming more common. 
Um, so I thought we'd tell our listeners what it is and then why, you know, how people are using it. And maybe can you can you just give an intro about what reps and warranty insurance is and how it works in a deal? Sure. Uh, thanks, Mark. So in a in a deal, in the documents in particular, probably half of the main purchase agreement document is representations and warranties. So things that the seller is, you know, making representations about the company. And those are often, um, you know, fought over exactly the scope or what's going to be included, what's excluded, what are the thresholds around disclosure of certain items. So rep and warranty insurance is an industry that's really taken off over probably the last 10 years, uh, although it existed before, and it existed over in Europe, even before it was here in the U.S. But basically, it's an underwriting product where an insurer takes the risk that the seller is is not being accurate on the reps and warranties, not so much from any sort of fraud or plan perspective, but just, you know, when you're making reps and warranties about so many line items, like every single thing in a warehouse, chances are there might be something that's not exactly accurate with one of them. And so instead of having the buyer and seller fight over what those thresholds are going to be, how much money is going to be set aside, how can you grab it, one side or the other will go buy a policy that underwrites the whole thing. So the diligence ends up looking different because you're really doing a deep dive when you're on the, the buy side because you, you've got to produce a uh, report and give to these underwriters so that they can get comfortable taking the risk on that policy. And then otherwise, it's an you know, it is like any other industry um, insurance product, um, be it auto, life, whatnot, you know you're going to pay a certain number of claims. You're not going to pay a large number of claims. And some underwriters uh, have their algorithms on how they price it and what the risk looks like. And, um, you know, most of the deals that we see now, particularly any deal that has an equity value over about $20 million, involves rep and warranty insurance. And one of the things going back to the conversation at the beginning is it often accelerates the deal because uh, you take a really contentious piece between the buyer and the seller and it still exists, but now it's being underwritten by an underwriter, an insurance company that's sort of on the side. And so it makes the negotiation a little bit smoother. You still fight a little bit over the reps and warranties, but you know, then you can focus really on the deal side, on the bigger points, uh, you know, the economics, the integration, the role of the management team, the other things that are very critical to the deal. And you can take this piece, which is equally critical, but if someone else is going to come in and sort of moderate that discussion, if you will, on the underwriting side, uh, it changes the deal dynamics and has the impact, I believe, of accelerate them. Interesting. Dean? Yeah, so so it's uh, you know we're talking about this white hot market. So I just and I agree with everything, of course, that uh, my excellent partner Scott Anderson just laid out. But um, there is a, an interesting since we're on the topic here for this podcast of uh, the white hot M and A market. There is uh, has been an impact of this white hot market on reps and warranty insurance. We're doing two reps and warranty policies right now on on two of the 11 deals we're, we're juggling with on my team. And we found that the cost is increasing. And from last year, we're finding it less competitive. Uh, it's definitely a seller's market right now in terms of the reps and warranty insurers selling their product. So I'll contrast like a year ago, I do a lot of fintech and, and real estate tech deals. So a lot of technology. And we were able a year ago to get 
uh, very easily to get a quote from the three leading insurers that we were talking to for expanded uh, fundamental reps and warranty, uh, warranty coverage. Uh, so in terms of expansion, we got IP, uh, for example, not just the, the core of authorization, capitalization, taxes, you know, and stuff like that. We also got IP as a fundamental and they were able to not only give us a IP as a fundamental, but they also expanded that in terms of we had, instead of $6 million of coverage, we had, let's say $10 million of coverage. So they increased the coverage amount. We just tried that for the same client this month and we were told it wasn't available. They would not even sell us. Not, not at any price. They would expand They would expand the uh, IP as a fundamental and allow us to get a longer time period, survivability period, but we could not buy additional coverage for the IP. And it's a problem in this deal because this deal happens to have a lot of uh, institutional investors and they just want to wash their hands of the deal when they sell and, and walk away. And the insurer will not give us the additional coverage even at any price. And and the broker came back to us and said, look, they have a laundry list. They have a line outside their door of deals looking for reps and warranty insurance. And right now they can, if you don't want to take what they're offering, go see someone else. They're happy because they'll just take, they'll say next in line. So it's, the impact of the white hot market has caused reps and warning insurers to have the upper hand, uh, insurance companies to have the upper hand in terms of, you know, what they're offering. Uh, it's not a buyer's market, it's a seller's market. Dean, does that mean more deals are just going without insurance? Obviously, 10, 20 years ago, most deals did not have rep and warranty insurance. Is that what people are reverting back to given the unavailability of it or they well, paying more? Or? We're still going on this particular deal. We're still going forward with it, but you know, obviously the buyer is going to be exposed here. But you know, one of the things rep and warranty insurance sometimes falls down on is, you know, it, it really only covers the unknown unknowns for both the buyer and the seller uh, for the reps and warranties. So if there's anything like uh, Scott alluded to, the heavy due diligence we have to do, it's more costly for the buyer to do a much deeper dive and do a full formal due diligence memorandum. And that has to be given to the insurance companies, uh, the underwriters council. And then they get on the phone with us and, and basically put us through a deposition to make sure that we truly did have all our specialists do a deep dive and that we've uncovered anything because they're not interested in ensuring things that should be readily apparent or found. And if you find that there are state and local taxes that have not been paid in 10 states, they will carve that out. If you find that they may have infringed on somebody's intellectual property, that will be carved out. So anything we find when we do our job on the buy side due diligence, the insurance company says that's an exclusion, that's an exclusion, that's an exclusion. So it really has benefit, but it really only benefits the things that nobody expected uh, and nobody thought of on either side. Gotcha. Sounds good. Uh, Scott, we, we have listeners that are both in-house counsel at small companies that maybe are targets of a deal or thinking about being acquired and some large companies that are doing acquisition mode. Any any tips for them either on rep and warranty insurance or generally on the current market in M&A that, that in-house lawyers that are listening and maybe ready to do a deal buying or selling should be thinking about? And then I'll ask you the same question, Dean. 
Yeah, that's a great question, Mark. I think on particularly on the sell side, doing your internal homework, kind of putting the company through the paces that you know a buyer is going to so that you can identify any issues and try to get ahead of them is really helpful to the process because what you don't want is the, the buyer to get in and find something that, that you are unaware of and then, you know, that usually leads to other questions. Okay, if your seller didn't know about X, Y, and Z, you know, how can you know about A, B, and C, and D, E, and F, and on and on? And so that has a tendency to slow down the process if the buyer starts digging and finding things. So, you know, you don't always have the luxury of time, but when a seller has the luxury of time and, and planning, if they can start 12, 18 months before starting to kind of get the house in order, in the same way that, you know, if you know you're going to put your house on the market, you don't wait until after it's on the market to put the, you know, paint on it and clean out the garage. You do all that beforehand. It's the same sort of thing on, on these transactions, although, you know, exponentially more complicated. But so, like, the areas that, that we see um, really coming up time and time again are things like employee classification, you know, meaning both are your employees properly classified as exempt or non-exempt, and are your contractors properly classified as contractors, or really should they be employees? Almost every deal, whether it's software or manufacturing, you know, we see a pretty deep dive into that. Um, Dean was talking about the significance of IP in, you know, deals, and particularly anything software-related, fintech-related, anything like that. IP, intellectual property is going to be critical. And so looking at ownership and making sure if you're using offshore contractors, you've got all of the right paperwork in place. So, you know, and we've seen data security also being a big component regulatory and commercially and otherwise uh, in the last couple of years. So I would say try to do your homework and, um, you know, button up as, you know, the best you can, all those things. You know you're going to be asked for all of these thousand contracts, so go find them and, you know, make sure they say the things that they need to say, and if not, you've got a little time to clean them up. And I usually think the reverse to the buyers, basically, like, you know, these are the areas where you're going to be historically most likely to see issues. So, you know, spend some time poking and prodding, you know, doing a lot of technology diligence to make sure it works and make sure it's what you need, particularly going back to one, one of the things you both had said earlier around integration. You know, you want to make sure that if you're combining platforms that, that you know, you know that they're going to handshake well. So I think really it's just that kind of preparedness, um, getting the house in order and kind of knowing what to, what to dig into as you start looking at the company. Terrific. Great advice. Dean, anything you want to add to, to, to Scott's list? Uh, Scott did an excellent job. I'll just say that, uh, you know, I'm mostly on the and government contracts. I'm on the sell side, but fintech, real tech, and technology companies uh, and the roles with the PEs, I'm uh, always on the buy side. So I'll, I'll say a little bit about on the buy side. You know, my father, something my father always said before he passed away is uh, success is when preparation meets opportunity. Uh, so it's never more true than now with this white hot market. One of my buy side roll up clients keeps winning uh, the LOIs that they're putting out in, in auctions because they are moving extremely fast. Antidote is like the, the vice president of MA uh, for this one roll up said, Look, you know, and they put pressure on us, Mumble to help tur turn these around in 24 hours often, um, <laughs> is that, that they, they want to deal that 
there was already LOIs uh, from other bidders that was uh, with the target, you know, for two to three weeks before they even got invited in to the process. But they turned the LOI, they did their economic modeling on their side within three days of getting some of the financials and basic information they needed to, to model out a purchase price. They came to us and said, and asked us to turn it in 24 hours. And we did the LOI and they submitted it and the target selected them. They said partly because they said, we're worried about a long process with negotiating close to the deal. And you guys have shown that you can turn on a dime. And so we have a lot more confidence in you guys saying you'll get the deal done in 45 to 60 days as opposed to other people. So I would you know, tell people like success is when preparation meets opportunity. And that means being willing to move fast, move efficiently, which means being prepared beforehand, have your processes set up. If you're a buyer on how are you going to model out when you meet the target, what key information, what's the smallest amount of information that you as the buyer will need about the seller in order to model out and do an economic model on the purchase price. And how fast can you get your committee or your board of directors or your private equity backer to approve that model? Then have a law firm that's ready to turn in the LOI, the legalese of the LOI in a matter of 24 to 48 hours at most so that you can be the early bird that catches the worm. Um, the other thing is, you know, on the buy side advice is just to know what you want to buy, why you want to buy it, how the integration will be done. And then don't cheat due diligence. That's a big one I always tell uh, buyers. Never cheat due diligence. It may be the most mundane part of the M&A, not the sexy negotiations back and forth on the integration clauses and, or, or networking capital or the reps and warranties or the indemnification section. Really, the battle is won or lost on due diligence. You want to know as much about the target as you possibly can in the 30 to 90 days you have to diligence it and close the deal. Great. Fantastic advice. No, and it's good to know that folks have, have lawyers like Womble to do the quick turnaround when you have to, even though I'm sure it means late nights and early morning uh, work for, for you and your team. You? No, no one has claimed a two o'clock to four o'clock in the morning time slot yet. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's good. We can record our next episode then. <laughs> um, PPP loans. I know a lot of companies, uh, particularly smaller companies, uh, took on a lot of PPP loans. Are they, and that's the Paycheck Protection Program, a way to infuse uh, money in. Is that having an impact on deals? And are, are people worried about the impact of those loans? And I know there's been some uncertainty around, are they going to be forgiven and some slowdowns in that process? Are you guys seeing any impact on that? Scott, let me ask you first, is that is that a factor or is that not a big issue right now? Uh, yeah, it's still it's certainly still a factor. And we have seen uh, a number of clients get forgiveness, you know, formally now. So that, that process is running through the pipeline. In terms of deals, it kind of depends on the buyer and what their appetite is. Certainly if it's a private equity buyer or a, a buyer that wouldn't have been able to qualify properly for a loan in the first part, they probably don't want to take on the tail end of the loan and the forgiveness process. We've seen a number of deals on both sides where we've represented, you know, either the buyer or the seller, where the the borrower, which is usually the seller, has repaid the loan, 
either with the deal proceeds immediately or just accelerated the cash if it actually did bridge the gap to get them into a better economic situation and do what the loan was designed to do. So a number of buyers we've seen require borrowers to pay back the loans. Others have, have done things like escrow money so that if forgiveness doesn't come through, it's definitely a seller expense. So we're seeing it uh, and it having an impact, but the solutions are sort of ready built in. The most problematic ones are sort of the larger loans where the buyer doesn't really want to accept the risk, reputational or otherwise, for having a portfolio company, if you will, with that loan. And so, you know, they'll delay a deal sometimes to wait for the forgiveness or then just, you know, require the, the sellers to go ahead and repay it, which is not always, you know, economically palatable. So there is a little bit of a dance that still goes on if you encounter a company that has an outstanding PPP loan. Although I've heard anecdotally and, and seen in a few of the data points that, you know, they're certainly starting, they're going sort of, you know, smaller dollars up the chain in terms of how the forgiveness is working. So, you know, those big, larger, outstanding ones will still probably cause some issues in deals for probably the back half of this year. Gotcha. Anything to add on the PPP side, Dean? Yeah, it's, uh, you know, so certainly, um, look, it was a big factor in M&A in 2020 with the first tranche of PPP that was a approved because Congress in its, in its rush to get this out there and, and give them relief as quickly as possible, paid zero attention. No one on the Hill paid zero attention to PPP's impact on M&A. It just wasn't a thought. You, you could tell in the way that the legislation was written. It just, they, that, those questions quickly started arising and, and they were caught up in Congress. They were, and the SBA, they were caught flat-footed. Um, you know, they got smarter with the second tranche of PPP and they came out with much clearer guidance on eligibility and whether the affiliation rules. So, you know, for example, the one roll up that I'm representing, we ran into a huge problem because we're, again, we're closing one to two deals a month for them. And these were smaller technology software SaaS companies that clearly had under 500 employees, completely qualified and were eligible. But once we bought them was all the portfolio companies associated with the private equity fund also counted as part of the employee account for for eligibility purposes and what happens and the guidance sba guidance had nothing initially in terms of well if you qualify when you got it are you able to keep it even though now you're part of a bigger organization that's over 500 employees in total and or do you pay it back? And we just took the stance that you have to pay it back. Just treat it as a cheap loan, 1% loan, just pay it back. Then we got into, Scott mentioned the forgiveness uh, stuff. And, and at first, banks were slow to forgive. SBA had to approve the really large forgivenesses, but a lot of them they deputized because this SBA couldn't handle this. All the, the hundreds of thousands of loans out there, they deputized the banks to do that kind of uh, forgiveness analysis themselves. But now what we're running into, and Scott alluded to this a little bit, is on the eligibility issues, we just did a deal where the target was already private equity backed and we're private equity looking to buy that target. And we were like, how'd you guys qualify for this? <laughs> and 
And lo and behold, they when they filled out their application and they gave us the application due diligence, they didn't go up the tree and list all their information. We're like, you know, TV timeout, guys. We're not buying this problem. Even though they were about to submit their forgiveness application, we forced them to take the hit and just pay it back. We just said, sorry, we just can't afford, and we think this is right for an audit. So, you know, so there's there's a lot of fallout on that right now in terms of people who did not completely fill out their application or disclose things that they should have disclosed. And uh, yeah, so we're dealing with a little bit of that now. But overall, in terms of applications, that that's kind of come and gone now. And we're just really dealing, like Scott said, with the back end. Thanks. Um, for my last question, I want you to use your crystal balls. I know you're experts at that, but um, we talked about the Red Heart market today in M&A. What, what do you see going forward over the next you know, two, three quarters or even, the you know, or in the next couple of years, I assume at some point things have to slow down. Do you guys have a sense of when that might occur? What what are things going to look like over the next few years? Scott, let me ask you, what is your what does your crystal ball say about M&A activity? You know, we're recording this uh, at the end of August. So what what, what are things going to look like primarily, I guess, in 2022? You know, my crystal ball is really cloudy. Uh, but if I had to, you know, scrub it and take a, a deep gaze, you know, the things I'm thinking that, that may impact are probably any sort of movement on the antitrust front out of the Biden administration. We've already seen a few pronouncements there, you know, more scrutiny, not just around the big deals that you see in the Wall Street Journal and whatnot, but sort of the, the middle market kind of run-of-the-mill deals that, you know, they're probably 150 closed every day across the country. You know, those sorts of deals um, getting scrutinized by the, uh, the Department of Justice, which I'm not suggesting that they would even say that they couldn't close, but just that specter of extra regulation or timing adjustments or extra things you have to think about during a transaction, you know, that'll be interesting to see how the antitrust uh, changes or recalibration maybe uh, play out. You know, if you'd asked me this question three months ago, I probably would have said taxes, which I think was one of the potential answers you gave on the poll question. Um, now, I think that's pushed out probably a, a while. I mean, Congress has enough going on with various existential crises and uh, political unrest around the world. So I don't know that there's a huge will at the moment to do something that massive like, you know, a 1986-style complete tax overhaul, which is kind of where we might have been headed. That's still out there as a possibility, but I, I think that's probably more remote by the day. Um, and then, you know, my other crystal ball is sort of we don't know what we don't know about, you know, we're in Delta now with COVID. We have Lambda. You know, I really hope you're not having this conversation with somebody next year at this time. We're talking about Omega at the end of the alphabet. <laughs> so, um, you know, who knows what that all is going to bring. Thanks, Scott. And and for people that want to know more about uh, the antitrust stuff, we just recorded an episode and people, you can find it in your feed with David Hamilton and Sarah Stone, where we were looking at some of those antitrust issues, what's going on with the Department of Justice. So I commend that to listeners. And if you don't have time for the whole episode, uh, we've got a summary of it on our 
webpage at WombleBondDickinson.com. Um, Dean, is your crystal ball any clearer than Scott's? I see you using the Ouija board. Our listeners can't see that on your desk, <laughs> and I assume that will that psychic insight may help. Yeah, but I just did the Ouija board and said, forget retirement. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> that's because there's just way too much work to, to, to retire. <laughs> take take M&A deal to grave. Uh, no, I, I, yeah, absolutely. I, I guess a little bit clearer only because the uh, roll-ups that I am representing for the, the private equity that I work with are looking at roll-ups of technology and fintech companies and real tech companies between the values, enterprise values of 10 million to 60 million. So we're not hitting, it's a much, as Scott alluded to, in terms of the antitrust, potential antitrust uh, regulatory reform, you know, that is going to come, not only hit those really super large deals, but will come down, but I don't know if it'll come down in terms of the 10 million to $50 million, you know, lower mid-market deals. And those are going to continue to be pretty hot, in my opinion, because as um, in this virtual world, digitized world, smaller companies, and, and we're finding this a lot with some of the companies we're buying, that they just don't have the bench strength and the horsepower to other to make it big. They're probably at best going to flatline and grow, you know, zero to five percent per year at Kager and. I think it's um, those type of companies become a, an attractive target for consolidators and, and roll-ups. And so I think in terms of the roll-up world and M&A, it'll continue to be fairly robust uh, for those lower mid-market plays. Great. Awesome. Thank you both. Uh, a great insight and, and great insight into what's going on. Um, I appreciate you both taking the time out of what's clearly a super busy schedule to join us here on the in-house roundhouse. That does bring us to the end of this show. I want to remind our listeners, you can find previous episodes of the in-house roundhouse and subscribe to the podcast at our website, WombleBondDickinson.com or on iTunes, Google Play Store, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have questions or comments, please share them with me on LinkedIn or Twitter or directly by email. Thanks for listening. This has been the In-House Roundhouse. See you at the next station.